been friends with Patrick Regan for many years now. And uh, I first knew Patrick when he was running a charity that worked among the gang cultures in London called XLP. It was a charity that gained lots of respect right across the agencies, working with the Mayor of London, working with ITV, working with all sorts of political parties, um, even had royal visitors to go and see it. I think, did you have William and Kate come twice? Wow. So can you all bow and curtsy okay today? Because <laughs> not only has he had royal visitors, but he is also an OBE. A number of years ago, despite all of those years of really impacting and making a difference amongst those gang cultures in London, that Patrick really began to get burdened through a journey in his own personal life about addressing the significant mental health crisis that we have, uh, we are facing in the nation. And so um, it was a real privilege. I'm really with you a lot of that journey of just seeing God move in your heart and out of that Kintsugi hope um, came and arose and has been equipping churches amazingly over the last few years. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask you to... I don't know if it's a competition, but we're going to make sure we give him the best welcome out of any of the venues this afternoon, okay? But let's pray first and then prepare yourself for the welcome. Jesus, you care about all of our stories, all of our stresses, all of our strains, all of our thoughts, and you care for all of those in our communities. And Lord, some of us have come here today knowing there's a need, but not knowing how to address it. And I thank you for raising a Patrick and his team, Kintsugi Hope, for such a time as this. And we pray today that as he unpacks and shares his story and brings gems of wisdom from his experience and understanding, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to respond bravely, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, let's give Patrick Regan OBE a big welcome. Wow, thank you so much, Mark. What a lovely welcome. It's um, really lovely to see you. My name's Patrick, and uh, I want to do a little bit of a talk around what's called a mental health-friendly church. And uh, the first part of the talk, some of you may have heard before, because it's my story. And the second part, I've never presented this research before. So you are the first people ever to hear this. I hope you feel really, really special. And, uh, but I really believe you know, in being real and being authentic and being honest when we talk about these issues. Um, I used to do a lot of youth work back in the day. Uh, I don't do so much now. But who remembers their school assembly being the most riveting, exciting, dynamic moment of their school career? Anyone? Are you teachers by any chance? So I, I remember um, this one story, which I absolutely love. Um, uh, a bunch of students, they come into the assembly hall, and uh, they go past the stage. And on the stage is a table. And on the table is this basket of juicy-looking apples. But above the apples, uh, one of the teachers had says, written, on, uh, written a sign. And the sign says this, Take one apple only. God is watching. And, uh, and, you know, the kids looked pretty nervous at this point. And so they sort of went forward, took an apple, had a look around, <laughs> and then sat down. And then they went out the back door. And uh, on the back door, as they go down the corridor, there was another table. And on this table was delicious homemade chocolate brownie. And a kid had written above the chocolate brownie, take as much brownie as you want. God's watching the apples. <laughs> 
And you know, so often we just communicate a God that's mean, don't we? A God that couldn't possibly understand what we're going through. Well, um, as I say, we work for Kintsugi Hope, myself and Joel, who will be sharing a little bit later. And just before we get going, a few resources that may be able to help you. Um, I've written, well, I've written six books, actually. But um, three books around mental and emotional health that I've written, When Faith Gets Shaken, um, Honesty Over Silence, and Bouncing Forward. Um, Honesty Over Silence has a tagline, It's Okay Not To Be Okay. And I really do believe that. I really believe you need to be real and you need to be authentic. But what happened to me after When Faith Gets Shaken and Honesty Over Silence, I was getting so many emails, I can't even tell you, long emails, me of people telling me their story and sometimes how they've been hurt by church, sometimes people in the community. And, and as I read these emails, um, it, was, it was so moving. I was like, I do believe it's okay not to be okay, but I don't want people to stay not being okay. I want people to thrive. I want people to do really well. And, uh, and so I said to my publisher two months before COVID, um, I'm thinking of writing a book on resilience. And uh, resilience, by definition, is thriving in the midst of adversity. So imagine how I felt two months before COVID, deciding to write a book called Thriving in the Midst of Adversity. And, and then COVID hit. And I was like, I can't write it now. I said to my wife, Diane, I can't do it. And she was like, this is precisely why you should be doing it. You, you know, you've heard God, you need to write this book. And the really interesting thing for me is when anyone talks about resilience, and you'll hear this on the news all the time now, we refer to it, and I've heard it in church, I've even heard it since I've been here, all right, is will the church bounce back? Will the economy bounce back? Will education bounce back? And as I started to think about this, I was like, yeah, I don't want to bounce back. Why would I want to go back to my pre-trauma self? Why well, do I want to go back and go through all those lessons again that I've just learned in the last couple of years, for good and for bad? My values have been changed. I've been changed. My family's been changed. So I want to bounce forwards. I want to take the good, the bad, all the stuff, and not just go back, but actually go, what's God saying now? And, uh, and to embrace that. And so that's what that book looks like. And then what we're going to do is myself, Joel, and some musical guests, we're going to go on tour around the UK. And uh, so if we're coming near you, please come along. This is literally the favorite thing I do in the whole world. I absolutely love this. But what we're loving about this is um, about, you know, nearly a third of people that are coming along are of no faith. And hand on heart, um, we've been to a few churches at Elam Kidderminster, weren't we? Is it Kidderminster, your church? Yeah, Elam Kidderminster with the lovely Diane. Um, hand on heart, what you'll find is you can bring people of no faith and it will be actually okay. You know when pastors say that and then you get there and then there's all this jargon and Christian music that you possibly can't understand unless you've been to Bible college for the last 10 years. Um, genuinely, they'll be okay. They will laugh, they might cry, and they'll ask lots of questions by the end of it. So please tell people a little bit about that as well. And, and lastly is we also um, send out a podcast every single um, month and we interview some of the best minds on emotional and mental health and here's a 30 second clip that tells you about that anxiety is just the thing that goes on in our, our brains but actually it's it's very physical as well being able to share the story of shame with someone that can be trusted because in a sense you're opening your heart when you share your story of shame you're opening your heart to someone and if you open the doors to your heart, you really don't need anyone coming in with hobnail boots and trampling all over it. You need someone that will come in with compassion. Is it okay if we break that up? Is it okay to feel disappointed at God? 
yes, we're human beings. Um, necessarily, is that the right approach? Who knows? However, I think the issue lies in um, things are the way they are, but we imagine them to be different. So those of you who don't know what kintsugi means, kintsugi is a Japanese word that means golden joinery. And the whole idea is you get a bowl, you break it, you mend it with super glue, you pretend it's okay. So what they do in Japan is they put a gold powder in the glue. So instead of hiding the cracks, they make a feature of the cracks. So arguably the object becomes more beautiful for being broken. It certainly becomes more unique. There isn't a bowl like that on planet Earth. And, you know, and I think that's the story of our lives, isn't it? That beauty can come from brokenness, that our scars are not there to be ashamed of. In fact, Jesus in his resurrected body had scars. So there's going to be scars in heaven, people. You know that, right? And instead of being ashamed of it, then maybe we need to tell our stories and honor our stories. So what I wanted to do is just to make it really real, I wanted to tell you a little bit my story and then present you some of the research around what makes a mental health friendly church. Um, I was one of those typical Christian workers, I guess, that was just working too hard. Uh, really passionate, really motivated about uh, what I was doing. And I think I, what I used to do is I used to work so hard, I used to get to the edge and realize that I'm getting to the edge and then rest a little bit and then go to the edge again. <laughs> and then rest a little bit. Can anyone else relate to what I'm saying here? Is a little bit, if you get your phone, um, your phone will work exactly the same on 100% as it works on 10%. There's nothing your phone can't do on 10% that it can't do on 100%, and vice versa. What's the difference? It just doesn't last very long. And I think the reality is we've got a culture, and if we have time we can talk about this, we have a culture that means we live on the edge of burnout. Most of the leaders I know, they're like, the first thing you say to them, how are you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm really tired. Um, and I'm like, you're always really tired. <laughs> and they're like, I know. They live on the edge of burnout. And the challenge was, is I was really struggling with very deep feelings of anxiety. Yet I was felt so ashamed that I couldn't tell anyone. And I started thinking, you know, I'm struggling with this. And I've never really heard anyone preach about it. I've never really heard people preach about perfectionism or, or anger. You know, the sermon on anger, that isn't Jesus and the money changers. You know, is there more to anger than that? And, uh, and depression and all these things that were going through my head. And I was really struggling how I was feeling about myself. I was starting to wish I wasn't here. And that's a desperately lonely place to be. And at the same time, everything was looking wonderful. So here's some pictures of what was going on as I was looking really, really bad. So um, this is my wife, Diane. She's in the black dress on the end there, um, just in case you're <laughs> confused. Um, and the showreel in my life was looking fantastic. It was looking absolutely brilliant. We had the visits from the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, as Mark said. I hope you caught those names they dropped. And in fact, just before this photograph taken, I thought it was so funny. William turns to Diane, no, sorry, Catherine turns to Diane and says, do you like my dress? I'm not really sure what you meant to say when the Duke of Duch you know, Duchess of Cambridge says, do you like my dress? So Diane went, it's a very nice dress. And she went, oh, that's good. William says, I look like a tablecloth. He has a point. He has a point. He's quite observant. And anyway, these photos literally went around the world. I was in OK Magazine and Hello Magazine. We were on the BBC News. We were um, meeting prime ministers. And it looked, the showreel looked fantastic. But the reality is, in this picture, I'm someone that's deeply struggling with anxiety, deeply struggling to sleep, and not really sure if I want to be here. 
anymore, thinking that everyone might be a little bit better off if I wasn't around, and feeling totally and utterly ashamed. And so I started thinking about all the sermons I heard on mental health. That took about 30 seconds. Um, And when I did tell people, I was told that depression was a sin and I needed to trust God a little bit more. Or people used to come up, you know what, what, Patrick, what you really need to do? I'm like, here we go. You need to pray a bit more. As if I'd never thought of that idea. Um, And don't get me wrong, of course we need to pray and of course we need to push in. Um, But sometimes we need to be sensitive as well. Um, I didn't have enough faith. And I got prayed for so many times. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. You start feeling sorry for the person that's praying for you. And I'm like, I'm just going to fall over just to cheer them up a little bit in a minute. They are really getting intense about this. And, and I felt ashamed. And I lived by the shoulds, the musts, the oughts. I should be able to cope. What's wrong with me? I've got a job I'm passionate about, an amazing family. I must pull myself together or I'm going to let everyone down. I know God loves me and is in control, but why do I feel the way that I do? I ought to be stronger. Get a grip. Spend more time praying. And so I started to write. And I started to write about my experiences. And I discovered something. That actually the way that I was feeling, so many other people were feeling the same way. And I started to really think through, what does anxiety, what do these things really look like? I can give you so much of the technical. I'm surrounded by mental health experts in my workplace. I've got CBT therapists and theologians in emotional mental health and psychologists and all that sort of stuff. And sometimes I read the books and it just felt so technical. You know, fight, flight or freeze. I get it, but what's it feel like? And so this little video for me described a little bit how I was feeling. High functioning anxiety looks like achievement, busyness, perfectionism. When it sneaks out, it transforms into nervous habits. Nail biting, foot tapping, running my fingers through my hair. If you look close enough, you can see it in unanswered text messages, flakiness, nervous laughter, a snake slithering up my back, clamping its jaws shut where my shoulders beat my neck, punch in the gut stomach aches like my body's confusing, answering email with being attacked by a lion. High functioning anxiety sounds like I'm not good enough. I'm a bad friend. I'm not good at my job. I'm wasting time. I'm so needy. My boyfriend thinks I'm needy. Why would I say that? What if they hate Why can't I have just get it? I'm letting everybody I'm down. letting myself Nobody down. here likes Bad me. friend. Bad sister. Bad dog. Not good enough. I'm not good enough. All the while, it appears perfectly calm. It's always looking for the next outlet. Something to channel the never-ending energy. Writing, running, list-making, mindless tasks, whatever keeps you busy. Doing jumping jacks in the kitchen, dancing in the living room, pretending it's for fun, when really it's a choreographed routine of desperation. Trying to tire out those thoughts stuck in your head. It's silent anxiety attacks hidden by smiles. It's when answering a text impulsively and thoughtlessly is an act of bravery. It's finding your own humanity in the anxiety, in your weaknesses. It's trying to let the energy inspire you instead of bring you down. A good first step is staring at it straight on and calling it by its name. So what I really liked about that video is the last bit it says, a good first step exactly. is looking at it straight, straight on, on and calling, it by, and its calling name. it by its name. Now, the one thing I really want to be really clear on is acceptance and resignation are two really different things. So acceptance is actually the first path to healing of anything. Resignation is I quit, I can't do it anymore. And there's, it sounds subtle, but there's a really important difference between the two. Because sometimes I talk to Christians, like, just deny everything, claim the God. You know? Well, acceptance is actually a really biblical thing. You know, I managed to interview um, Anne Frank's stepsister, Eva Shalos, about her time in Auschwitz. She's 93 years old. And she said the people that didn't survive Auschwitz were the optimists. And I was like, what do you mean? 
And uh, she said, well, the optimist would go, we'd be out by Christmas, we'll be out by Easter. And Christmas and Easter came, and, and obviously they stayed in. She said the people that survived Auschwitz, the ones who accepted the situation they were in, adapted to it, but never lost hope. And also there was a lot of luck. <laughs> but actually acceptance is really important. And uh, we really need to grapple with that. So as I started writing um, Honesty Over Silence, I wanted to find a definition of anxiety that didn't feel like um, anxiety is weakness. And I, I, I found this in a blog, and I think it's actually beautiful. And it says this, anxiety, more than anything else, anxiety is caring. It's never wanting to hurt someone's feelings. It's never wanting to do something wrong. More than anything, it's the want and the need to be simply accepted and like. So you try too hard sometimes. That's an amazing definition, isn't it? And you can relate to that. Actually, we just try too hard sometimes. It's a little bit like a smoke alarm. If it's going off all the time, it can be quite annoying for you and for everyone else, in fact, because you want constant reassurance if you've got anxiety. But actually... Managed in the right way, people that have anxiety are incredibly sensitive, incredibly kind, have incredible empathy for others as well. And uh, it's not weakness. And uh, so I've come to this conclusion that depression, anxiety and panic attacks are not signs of weakness. They're signs of trying to remain strong for too long. There's an amazing book um, on clinical depression called The Curse of the Strong. And uh, the psychiatrist Tim Katamar says that he can tell the personal characteristics of someone suffering from depression nine times out of ten before he sees them. And they're these. It's fascinating. Moral strength, reliability, diligence, strong conscience, a strong sense of responsibility, a tendency to focus on the needs of others before one's own, sensitivity, vulnerable to criticism, self-esteem, dependent on the valuation of others. People that struggled with this, Oliver Cromwell, Abraham Lincoln, Vincent van Gogh, Winston Churchill, Mother Teresa, they ain't weak people. <laughs> Sometimes we've been strong for too long. Rick and Kay Warren, um, after the death of their son Matthew, who died by suicide, um, writes these words, it's not a sin to be sick. Your illness is not your identity and your chemistry not your character. Everything is broken in the world because of sin. So why is it then, if my liver doesn't work perfectly, I take a pill for that and there's no shame in that? What if my heart doesn't work perfectly, I take a pill for that and there's no shame in that? If my lungs don't work perfectly, I take a pill for that and there's no shame in that? So why then, if my brain doesn't work perfectly, I take a pill for that and I'm supposed to hide that? So what me and my friend Andy did, uh, when I wrote the book When Faith Gets Shaken, we decided just to go around a few churches, just sort of saying our message. We didn't really think anyone would be interested in booking it. We thought we'd do it for about three or four nights. We ended up doing it for 40. And um, we came here, actually. And, uh, and we wanted to do a response at the end that involved everyone in the room. Because sometimes I feel like our responses are, you're in or you're out. And the whole thing around, we all have mental health in exactly the same way as we have physical health. And if you've had a sleepless night, then your brain can't turn off. Well, that's actually a mental health thing, right? And uh, so we've all had it, and we all carry stuff. And so we just did a really simple thing, and it was really moving. Just write down something that you've been carrying for too long, and we're going to put it on the cross. And by putting it on the cross, we're not saying it suddenly it magically disappears, but we're saying, God, we're allowing you to come into this pain. We're allowing you to come into this. And literally, I don't know if there's a picture there, Joel, is there? Um, so you can notice that's downstairs. And you can see all the seats are emptied. And what you can't see is literally people. You can see them out on post-it notes on there. Are just kneeling down everywhere. It was an incredible time of lament and no hype, just reality. And, uh, and what used to happen is I used to stand there at the end of the event. 
and all these post-it notes everywhere. And the pastor would go to me, what now? <laughs> and I'd go, that's a really good question. And when I did look at some of them, virtually everything, I would say 70% of the stuff on that cross was often mental health related. And uh, so me and my wife, we started to pray. And we started to pray that maybe God would restore us in a different way. And, uh, and so what happened was I said to God, God, I'll do anything for you apart from run another charity. Because I never want to fundraise ever again in my life. And, uh, and I really felt God say, don't think charity, think movement. And I was like, what does that mean? And so I studied movements for about a year. I don't know, has anyone ever, um, I'm not particularly Christian movements, I did look into that a little bit, but just movements. So for instance, um, has anyone ever heard of Parkrun? Anyone done Parkrun here? You can put your hand up. That's quite impressive. So Parkrun is amazing. Hundreds of thousands of people running parks across our country. Different ages, different abilities, different ethnicities. You belong, but you don't have to fit in. I looked at rock choir. Rock choir runs on exactly the same principle. Choirs in community centres, in church halls, in schools. They hire Wembley Arena. 15,000 people come once a year. Different cultures, different ages, different abilities. You belong, but you don't have to fit in. Um, I started looking at Alcoholics Anonymous. I started looking at Weight Watchers. Anyone here done weight? No, let's not do that. And I started looking at Slimming World. I started looking at the Scout Movement. And I thought there's something beautiful when people get together in the grassroots of community and they start to come together. And so what we did is we started to have a little bit of a dream. And we started to realize, and this is really important, that wholeness is actually about our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. So I actually like these circles. I think this is a really really helpful way at looking at wholeness and so often what we do in the church is we focus on one we get fanatical about physical healing sometimes don't we um, which is amazing and that is an important part of it but this is the whole person that we're wanting to talk about here they say that vision is the art of seeing the invisible that produces passion and energy in people so our vision was we wanted to see a world where mental and emotional health is understood and accepted with safe and supportive communities so everyone can grow and flourish. And they weren't a load of clever words I thought of. I knew from my own experience, when I felt understood and accepted and safe and supported, I actually started to do really well. I wanted to find somewhere that people can belong, but they don't have to fit in. And so we started to dream. What would the dream be if everyone went through a Kintsugi Hope thing? So what we did is, me and my wife, we wrote a 12-week program all around well-being. We looked at anger, we looked at forgiveness, we looked at resilience. And we wrote it in learning styles because actually what might work well in Scotland or Exeter or Birmingham or Peckham where God lives um, <laughs> might be really different. And so actually writing it in learning styles means that you can deliver it very differently in different contexts. And we were like, we're trained the church to run this in their community. But I wanted to be really clear on our outcomes. And uh, we have four really clear outcomes, which I think are really uh, interesting. Safety and support where there's no shame and embarrassment in struggling. Everyone that goes through a Kintsugi wellbeing group needs to see an increase in self-worth and confidence and wellbeing. Everyone that goes through a Kintsugi wellbeing group needs to know a deeper understanding of the reality of God's love for them. That's really, really important to us. And needs to know there's clear pathways to receive additional support if they want to. This little video then went across social media. Life can feel like a game of Tetris. No matter what you do, sometimes the blocks don't line up. 
days spent trying to keep all the plates spinning, but sometimes it's just one plate too many. Or perhaps you're giving out of an empty cup. Some of us invest in our physical well-being. Why not invest in your mental and emotional well-being? We can all feel broken, but we can all discover treasure in life's scars. Join the Kintsugi Hope Wellbeing Group. Before COVID, churches were amazing. Um, we had the early adopters. People started doing it. Um, Tony Britton is probably out there um, somewhere. He was probably dragging you in, forcing you to come to the seminar. He started doing it in his homeless hostel. And he said, this works brilliantly for the homeless guys. And then he started doing it amongst the police force as well. So he runs it police officers. Um, other people started running it in schools and in youth groups and in coffee shops, um, in prisons, in universities. Someone talked about running it in a farmer's market, which I thought was amazing because suicide rate amongst farmers is really high. And so what an amazing idea these guys don't get. Another lady in Scotland was like, we're going to run it in the hairdressers. I was like, that's amazing. The hairdressers are half therapists, half hairdressers, right? They literally, people, and she goes, yeah, I've been asking them to come to something. They come to a room at the top and we do beauty therapy, then we do a kintsugi group. I just thought, this is incredible. And this is where it was happening um, across the UK just before um, uh, the lockdown. And then lockdown happened, and I was like, we're doomed, because I like to be overdramatic in everything. And my techie guys were, I think we can get all the training online which means anyone from across the UK can do it from where they are. And, and I was like, it was just me and my wife and a, a lovely lady called Ludovine at this point. And, and I was like, well, we'll give it a go. And we moved it online and then this is what happened. <laughs> Suddenly a little bit of a movement has started and literally it is in so many different contexts. And the Kintsugi leaders, they're incredible. They're just incredible. Some are running it for people who are coming out of the care system. Loads of people run it in home groups because sometimes it's quite hard to get people to alpha um, because it's quite in your face, isn't it? Um, whereas most people know we pray at the start and they'll come along. Um, Diane here from Elam uh, Kidderminster, she's been doing it with social prescribing, um, talking to the doctor's surgeries and getting people who feel lonely and vulnerable. In fact, one group of social prescribers in Ipswich uh, approached us and said, we love Kintsugi, we have 500 people we'd like to put in your Kintsugi groups. And so the church in Ipswich rang and said, can we take 500 in Kintsugi groups? And I was like, no, <laughs> we don't have enough churches. That's when did you last know 500 people from not the church want to come and do something for 12 weeks when you pray at the start and talk about your emotional mental health and make really deep relationships? It's incredible. And so we feel like we're just scratching the surface. And here's the key. It's not about being a mental health professional because you know what? My friend said it like this and I think it's a really beautiful way to put it. If you get cancer and you go to hospital, you expect the hospital to care for, um, give you chemo, to give you radiotherapy. But to get through a cancer journey, what do you need? Love, community and support. And that's where the church comes in because we're in every community across this country. And that's where we can offer so much to so many people who are broken. 
And uh, I said to God, you know what, God, if the next big move of your spirit, um, no disrespect to large events um, like this one, because um, they're good and they have their place, they really do. But if the next big move of your spirit comes in some massive conference center somewhere or some massive warehouse somewhere in America, and I don't know, Christian TV come and they beam it around the world and we call it revival, I think I might just quit. But if it could come in brothels and homeless hostels and universities and prisons and pubs and coffee shops and then for the homeless community and for single mums and if it's not led by the great and the charismatic but by the fragile, the humble, the vulnerable, the courageous, I'm up for it. I'd love to see a movement like that where people come to know Jesus as someone that can reach in their pain. One of the key verses for us is of 2 Corinthians 4 that says this, but we have treasure in jars of clay to show the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. So the really interesting thing that happened is as this was all going on, I got people around me who are much wiser and uh, more experienced than me. It's always a good thing to do when you're going through a growth spurt. And I said, look, this is happening. What do I do? And this one person made this comment, which really, really shook me. He went, Patrick, what you're doing about creating safe and supportive spaces for people that struggle with mental health is fantastic. But then he said this, but what happens if the church isn't a safe and supportive space? What happens if all these people come into the church and actually what they meet isn't a safe and supportive space? And I was like, oh my goodness, he's right. So we commissioned um, Fios, you know, the academic Christian research company, and to do some research on what does a mental health friendly church look like? And because uh, I sort of figured that the pandemic's changed all our stats, it, you know, it's like just shifted everything and and the next part I want to share with you some of their findings let me just give you some of the highlights of some of what some of the research says what they did first of all they looked at some of the research that was coming post-pandemic from our from our community and I guess a lot of these that you'd be familiar with um, the first that is one in four people struggle with their mental health each year um, that's huge isn't it I think the problem with statistics is we forget that every statistic is a life, is a person, is a family. More than two-thirds of adults in the UK reported feeling somewhat or very worried about the impact of COVID-19 on their lives. The portion of people coping well has fallen steadily. So what was really interesting during the, the, the lockdowns, actually the first lockdown, people were like, I don't mind this, I'm getting to see my family, we've got WhatsApp groups, and there was a sort of feel-good thing and then the second lockdown, and then the third lockdown. And actually, now we've really got to think about the role of trauma. Um, because trauma is not stored in your head, it's stored in your body. There's a brilliant book called The Body Keeps Score. And so uh, trying to understand trauma and the effect of trauma, and you've probably heard this saying, you know, about people being trauma-informed, um, which we haven't got time to go into now, but I'd really recommend that you Google it, you look at some of the resources that are there about being trauma-informed. Because actually... 62%, 40% of people are not coping very well at the moment. Um, so that is still a really big challenge. The people who are uh, struggling the most are those people who had a pre-existing mental health condition. And, uh, and you know it's Mental Health Awareness Week this week. And the theme is tackling social isolation. 
And so um, when I, I'm going back straight after this um, to home, and, uh, and we're doing walks with our community just all week and encouraging all our groups just to get out there and walk with people and uh, to do life together because uh, isolation makes everything worse. It certainly makes mental health more challenging. 53% of people cited mental illness and 79% isolation and loneliness as a much greater problem in their parish. And, uh, and so one of the first things that we knew that we had to deal with was the issue around language. And uh, I don't know, as many of you come across the sort of mental health first aid training? Um, a few of you here. So they talk about the mental health continuum. And the mental health continuum is it's saying that basically everyone is on this continuum. And I, this is a really, really helpful way. Because what you'll see here at the top, let's go for the top uh, that will be your left-hand corner. A person with a diagnosis of a serious mental illness who copes well and has positive mental health. Now that, so I know some people, right, who have got bipolar or something like that, and actually they are so aware of their limitations, they are well medicated, and they've got better mental health than me, to be honest. And yet sometimes they're not allowed to serve in church. And then, if you go down to the bottom, a person with no diagnosed mental illness or disorder who has poor mental health. And can you see the difference and how we move along this continuum? And I guess these lines, really, you could describe those lines as stigma. Because that's what stops people getting the help that they need. Because what we want is we want people to have really good mental health... And, uh, and be able to function well in society. Our language matters. And so there's a big difference, and this is a game where we get really complicated um, in the church. There's a massive difference between mental illness and mental health. Like there is a physical illness and physical health. And, uh, and so I say to our group, about our groups that our groups are not for people who've got a severe mental health illness because they're probably getting a whole load of, uh, of interventions that's really, really important. It can be helpful at certain times and we know that's been the case because we've seen that ourselves but we've got to be careful as well because we don't want it to be triggering or unhelpful so that's why we're really careful and the training is really well done and it's been looked at by the NHS and psychologists and all that sort of stuff but actually we've found that for most people if they invest in their mental health early that will stop things developing into a mental illness that can be really, really challenging for people. So we need to have the right language. So then we started looking um, at the UK church, and here's some of the statistics that came up from that. 43% um, of respondents had experienced a mental health issue in their lives. UK Christians overwhelmingly agree that churches can help people experiencing mental health issues, which is encouraging. Um, and I found actually the research wasn't all negative. I mean, I think some people was expecting that. There was just a really good mixture of encouragement and challenge running through the um, research, um, which was really, really good. 35% um, of respondents felt supported by their church in regard to their mental health. And there was a strong consensus respondents aren't caused by personal actions or sin, which again has been a real shift. The challenge has been is that for many people in our churches, they've experienced what was being called as negative lay theologies. 
And so when people have struggled with their mental health, often it's been put down to four main reasons. Number one um, is lack of faith. Has anyone ever heard that before? Um, unfortunately, everyone's nodding. And, and this is the belief that an individual has developed a mental challenge or mental illness due to lack of faith. And what we do is we take verses like Philippians 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. We take, whip them out of context and, and we interpret them in a certain way. My experience is this, is that people who have mental health challenges have incredible faith. Think about it. If you're suffering from depression and you're in a really dark place, and every single day you're in that place, and you get up and you love Jesus, and you love your family, and you contribute to your community, despite of that, 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 that pressure, that's faith. That's incredible faith. People that have got anxiety, just coming to church sometimes, showing up, that's faith. Do not tell me that people have mental health issues because they've got a lack of, they've got better faith than, than I have. I'm telling you that. And I, I put myself as someone who's got mental health challenges uh, as well. So um, selfishness. This is the belief that mental illness is inherently sinful and is rooted in selfishness. Um, again, I, I've sort of seen the opposite in some ways. And I know that all these issues can affect to a certain extent. But actually, what I've seen is some of the people that I know who struggle with mental health. You know, most of our group leaders have had a challenge at some point in their lives. And they've gone, I just want to use what I went through so someone else can benefit and not have to go through the pain that I've been through. I don't want it to be wasted. And they're incredible. They're absolutely incredible. I am humbled to be surrounded by such an amazing... We have 1,300 group leaders now um, across 355 churches. It's incredible. They're incredible. Um, and then the other one, personal sin. That this is a belief that thankfully has receded a little bit, that mental health issues are direct or personal sin. And I find this interesting because, you know, when Jesus healed the blind man, what did he say? Um, all the people around him said, is it because he's sinned or his ancestors have sinned? And the message version is really interesting. It says there's no cause and effect here. And then I love the stories on so many levels. Because here I think, here's a blind man who's cursed. Everyone else thinks he's, it's his fault that he's blind because he's sinned or his ancestors have sinned. And Jesus comes along and says, what do you want me to do for you? When I first read it, I was like, mm, he's blind. What do you expect him to say? I've got a headache or something. But then I was like, oh my goodness. An undesirable, a pain in the neck, uh, cursed by everyone else son of god god and human flesh moved into the neighborhood looks a blind beggar in the eyes and says how can i serve you how can i love you what do you want me to do for you give some dignity let him answer don't assume you know the amount of people i know have got physical illness and people just come up to them and start praying for their legs and stuff don't ask they might have a headache they might have something else wrong with them at least ask give them the dignity of asking what they would like prayer for and Jesus just models that in such a beautiful way. And then the last one is demons. And uh, I think I want to be really clear um, on this because um, it tends to cause quite a discussion, particularly amongst Pentecostals. And uh, is actually, we do believe in spiritual warfare. We do believe in spiritual forces. And, uh, but the interesting thing when it comes to mental health is we jump there so quickly. So if someone comes in with a broken leg to your church, you go, oh, the devil, demonic. Um, 
But so often, if someone comes in for mental illness, that's exactly the first place a lot of people go. It's just not helpful. Um, my friend says to me, you know, it's, it's interesting that demons probably don't respond to anti-anxiety tablets. So if the tablets are working, guess what? It might not be a demon. Um, and uh, in fact, he says this. You can't medicate demons. So if a person responds to antipsychotic medication, their issue is obviously neurophysical and not spiritual. We are typically cautious about challenging the meaning of scripture, apart from when Jesus heals a person with demonic oppression. There, we seem more than happier to say it is an actual mental illness. So can I humbly suggest that maybe we do need to have a little rethink? And do you know what? The challenge for me is no one wants to go there with this conversation. I tell you, there are academics, there are theologians, and everyone's scared of going there. And I get it. And so I think it needs to be, and we need to have a robust theology around some of these things that are going on. So we're not throwing the baby out of the bathwater. We're not saying spiritual forces don't exist. We're not saying there isn't a place. Of course there is. I've even had some speakers like challenge me while I've been here. Um, they, they say, here's Patrick, he does mental health. First thing they ask me about is spiritual warfare, interestingly enough. And, uh, and so I believe we've got to have the conversation. The other findings, um, and this is quite a big one, 91% of church leaders have had no training on mental health issues. Now, the really interesting thing about this was I actually really feel for our church leaders. I really do. And this wasn't knocking them at all because I think, and this is a bigger conversation that might get me into trouble, I think the way we have our leadership culture within the Christian world is unsustainable. I think we asked our leaders to be able to mend the roof, um, be fundraisers, volunteer managers, mental health experts, pastoral experts, evangelistic, prophetic, and we put so much pressure. Leaders have said to me, I'm so exhausted, and I feel like I'm target practice for my congregation. I'm literally target practice because they take all their pain out on me. And you know what? I don't know what to do. I was never taught mental health issues at Bible college. It's not part of the syllabus. Um, I've written to Chris and to others and said, like, I really believe in terms of our Bible colleges that this needs to be part. You know, it doesn't talk about mental illness. It talks about shalom all throughout the Bible, you know. Uh, Jesus was Prince of Peace. Prince of Wellbeing is actually another translation. And so we do need to think about it a little bit different. And so this wasn't a pop at leaders at all. It was saying that our leaders, actually the culture, if you define culture as the way we do things around here, it hasn't been working. And I think we need a radical rethink about that. But that would take me a long time to talk about, and I don't want to get distracted and hop your horse. 56% felt their church rarely or never speaks about mental health issues. So the report came up with three recommendations. And, uh, and it, it will be on our website, actually, the whole report in, uh, at, after the 21st of May when we have our national conference. The first one was around training and, uh, and how we need to be better trained, better equipped. So one of the things Kintsugi Hope are doing, you know Mental Health First Aid? Well, we've just come up with a Mental Health Friendly Church Training Day. Um, looking at some huge issues, um, looking at understanding our emotions and exploring a robust theology of mental health, understanding the mental health continuum, explore how church can eradicate stigma. And uh, we've got experts in counseling and theology and Clary, who's a CBT therapist, they're delivering that day around the UK. And as you can imagine, it's already getting fairly booked up. But again, 
they're there as you go away. If they can help you, if they can serve you in any way, please get in touch with these guys. They're, I can thoroughly, thoroughly recommend them to you. Um, the second key thing, and here's something for you preachers in the room, is that we need to somehow name our position on mental health because what is happening is it is not taught about because we do not have a robust theology on mental health. And the problem is, if you've got a mental health challenge and you go to church every single week and it's never talked about and it stays silent, guess what you feel? I feel ashamed. It's not important enough. I don't have enough faith. And sometimes these theologies, they're not, we've not even been taught them. It's almost been the thing we've heard behind the bike sheds type of thing. Do you know what I mean? It's been the thing we've assumed that that's what the church leader thinks because it's never talked about. And so maybe we need to talk about Elijah sitting there going, God, take my life, I've had enough. 40% of the Psalms are laments. You know, they're David crying out to God. You know, I've got some friends who are worship leaders. And in fact, I was having a Zoom call with Graham Kendrick, who's written quite a few songs. And, you know, he was saying that actually some of our songs, they need to be theologically more sound, not just a great tune. Um, because actually there's some theology in our songs that isn't always helpful. 40% of the Psalms are laments. And lament isn't a negative thing. It's David going, and other psalmists, God, I love you. I don't get it. I'm grappling with you. I feel quite angry with you, but I'm still engaging with you. That's a great place to be. That's a great, healthy place to be. And I think, and we need to engage in it. It's interesting. N.T. Wright, who again is a pretty good theologian, I think, um, he says between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he thinks Paul had a breakdown. And if you read it, Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians and he's writing in 2 Corinthians. There is a marked difference. And the pressure actually was trying to run the church. <laughs> um, and all the different laws and all the different things that are coming in. Incredible. So again, I think naming our position is so helpful. And then the last thing, which I think really made me feel with joy, is when the church is doing well, and some places the church is doing so well, it's doing so well. It's ministering to people in just such a beautiful way. Um, is when we've learned to be a gentle presence in people's lives. I love that term. Gentle presence. It means you don't have to be the expert. You see, I can't be a mental health expert, but I can be a gentle presence in my mate's life. I can take them to the GP when they're not feeling too good. I can have coffee with them. Um, I can go down the pub and we can talk football. Um, you know, gentle, being a gentle presence is a singular experience, but rather it's not a singular experience. It speaks of relationship. It demonstrates the need for church communities and those to, with them to journey alongside those with mental health issues. Sheld Richardson says this, people start to heal the moment they feel hurt. My favorite story in the Bible, if you allow one of the favorite stories in the Bible, is Jesus on the road to Emmaus. I love the fact that after Jesus' resurrection, um, that he chooses to spend it with two heartbroken people. And I've often thought, you know, if a marketing person had come up to Jesus at that point, he could have gone, um, Jesus, what would be really good now is one of those sort of feeding of the 5,000 geeks. You know, we'll get the message out. It will spread that way. Or if you've got another one of those Sermon on the Mount gigs, that would be even better. But what happens is that Jesus spends the whole day with two heartbroken people, half a day, six, seven hours. And, you know, he listens to their story. And when they start telling, you, telling them his story, he doesn't even jump in and go, guys, I'm Jesus. Da -da, we don't need to have this story anymore. Woohoo! Let's talk about something else. 
You know when people do that when you're telling them their story? Um, he tells them a bigger story. He tells them the story of God and how their story is wrapped up in this massive narrative of God doing something incredible. And then they get to Emmaus and they go, come in and have something to eat. And Jesus was, was going to go. He was going to leave them hanging. He was going to leave them hanging. What's all that about? But then they break the bread. And brokenness reveals who Jesus is. Love that. Brokenness reveals who Jesus is. Guys, what we need to re- realize is that we're not the rescuer. That is one of the most important things you need to realize. We are not the rescuer. You know, um, Samuel Wells, when I uh, did Bouncing Forwards, um, he says this. He says, when we look at the story of the Good Samaritan um, in the West, we are always the Good Samaritan. <laughs> we're always the rescuer. When you preach that story in the East, we're always the beggar at the side of the road. We're the ones that need Jesus. We're the ones that need healing. And you know who the Good Samaritan is in the East? It's always Jesus. Jesus is always the rescuer. We're the ones that bring people into the presence of Jesus. But Jesus is all the rescue. We are not the hero. Otherwise, we can't take on people's pain. I can't take on people's pain. I've had to learn that. I'm not a sponge for people's pain. You know, empathy isn't standing in someone's shoes because, you know, one of my friend's mums just died. And I said to her, I can't stand in your shoes. I can get in touch with that feeling when I knew my friends died and I can know a little bit what you're going through, but I can't know what you're going through because it's your mum and your memories. But I can be understanding, but I can't, I can't take on people's pain. And so, but we can be a gentle presence. And I think that's really, really key. I wanted Georgia because I sort of feel like our young people are really struggling at the moment. And uh, if we think we're struggling with mental health, this is on a different level, some of the things that Joel's experienced. It's really hard for young people at the moment, isn't it? Life's really tricky. I think as a teenager, normally, it's really confusing. So before COVID, there was a massive mental health rise in young people really struggling. And COVID has just sped that up. Because what COVID has done has taken all of the regular rhythms of life away from teenagers. And those regular rhythms give teenagers and young people security to process what's happened. And not only that, right now the world doesn't feel safe for our young people. They've grown up in the past two years of COVID where they've seen a death count on their social, on their online, on TV every single day seeing war in Europe and not just on the news, news articles but they're seeing videos of people there, their age. They're seeing climate change and how maybe we've only got a few years left before it's unchangeable what we've done, the damage we've done to this earth. The world does not feel safe for our young people. So I think when we're talking about all this and trying to be a gentle presence, we need to be creating safe spaces for our young people. As a church in our communities, we need to be that safe space where young people can come and process what's going on and can work out how they live through this, how they keep on going when life is so hard. So what we're trying to do at Consuga Youth is just promote and ask the church, can you create a safe space for your young people? How are you creating safe spaces to allow them to process what's going on? Brilliant. Thanks so much, Joel. And um, if you're a teacher... Um, if you're a youth worker, um, two-thirds of the Kintsugi groups are happening in schools at the moment. Um, it's amazing. One school trained their dinner ladies to run it. How cool is that? 
you can't miss the dinner lady, right? Everyone loves the dinner lady. And uh, I think that's, that's so cool. Um, please chat to Joel. Um, and uh, we have a marketing budget of about 50 quid a month. <laughs> It's all through word of mouth, it really is, and I think probably that's probably the best way for it to be. So please chat to Joel, and, uh, and I know Tony's probably around, he's run groups before, Diane here's run groups, um, we'd love to help you and serve you. Um, please come and find us on tour somewhere, we'd love that, and again, don't forget to fill in that little form if you want to get the um, podcast, but I want to finish by reading you a poem, and um, this poem is written by a lovely lady called Jane Smith. And Jane has a very rare form of blood cancer, and uh, she's been struggling for a while. She can't get out to hear me preach. Um, she's got out a couple of times. But she said, when I heard you were right, uh, doing a, a charity on discovering treasure and life scars, I wrote you a poem. And I actually think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. It talks about the things that she's discovered in her cancer journey, and it's called Discovery. And so I just want to finish by reading. Is that okay? It says this. Acceptance in the anguish, beauty in the bruises, comfort in the conflict, courage in the crisis, diamonds in the dust, dignity in the disappointment, discovery in the darkness, faith in the fear, fortitude in the frustration, grace in the grief, healing in the horror, hope in the hurt, insight in the injury, inspiration in the illness, lessons in the living, love in the loneliness, Mercy in the misunderstanding, opportunity in the ordeal, peace in the panic, maybe a little bit of purpose in the pain, maybe some rest in those restrictions, sanctuary in the suffering, some stillness in the storm, some support in the sadness, some treasure in the trials, some trust in all that trauma, some victory in the vulnerability, and some wisdom, lots of wisdom needed in the weakness. Father God, I thank you for these beautiful people at Elam Leaders Summit. I thank you, God, that I guess they all come here with their own stories, their own journeys, things that have been tough, things where um, maybe they're just wanting to give a little bit back. And I thank you, Father, I honestly believe that in your kingdom, nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. That you do, you put us back together, you pour in the gold, you do something unique, you do something special. And God, I pray in this room, would you do something special, God? Would you use all the stories, the experience? And Father, as your church, we love you. We love the church as well. And uh, I pray we would learn what it is to be a gentle presence in our communities. To be a place where people are lonely and they're struggling. They go, I know, I know a place that you can go. And you'll be loved and uh, you'll be looked after. God, we long to be able to be that. So God, we pray that you'd come, you'd fill us with your spirit, Lord, get rid of our egos and, our, and all the stuff that just keeps you away sometimes, God, that we would humbly come before you and ask you to work, move by your spirit. We are not the rescuer, you are. It's not about us, it's got to be about you. We are bored of all the hype and the talk and the theories. We just long for your gentle presence. So God, we love you, we worship you. Amen.